Would you turn in your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12? If you're not aware, over the last couple of weeks, I've been preaching a short series in 1 Corinthians 12 about the value of the church. And this morning we'll be reading in our Bibles from verse 27 through chapter 13, verse 13. You can follow along if you have Bibles with you. Otherwise, you can follow along in the screen behind me. If you're here this morning and this is all new to you, what I'm about to do is explain to you a part of the Bible. The Bible, we believe, has been given to us by God himself. It is a book that is unlike any other book. It's infallible and errant. That means it's not going to deceive us or lead us astray. And because of that, we take a good portion of time to read it and understand it, not just because it's a book, but because we believe God speaks to us. He has spoken, and He continues to speak to us through this Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. If I have a prophetic power and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease As for knowledge, it will pass away, for we all know in part and we prophesy in part. But when when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's Word. This is the last sermon, as I said, on the importance of the church. And I'm about to tell you a story about a young man, and I've asked his permission to tell you the story, otherwise I wouldn't. He showed up at our door. I think it was a Saturday afternoon. We lived in a rural community right next to Highway 69 in a small Iowa town. It wasn't unusual for people to stop because on this piece of property, there were three things. The church building, 
the graveyard and the parsonage. And people driving, driving by, if they needed to some, something, would stop fairly regularly to ask the question, can you help me pastor with some gas money? I really could use some grocery money. Is there anything you can do to help fix my car? It wasn't unusual at all. And as a church, we did our best to try to help. So when Jimmy showed up, my initial thought was, here's a young man who needs help. And I opened the door rather begrudgingly. But when Jimmy spoke, he asked me this question. He said, are you a Reformed church? I said, yes, that's an unusual question. He said, there was a guy down the road who told me this is a Reformed church, and I wanted to come and talk to you. So we chatted for a little bit, and I thought he was just an interested guy. It turns out he was very interested. The Lord had been doing a great work in his heart and literally from that moment on, he showed up with his wife and his children every Sunday. But that's not the remarkable part of the story. The remarkable part of the story is that Jimmy and his wife invited our family and, in fact, the congregation into their lives. From the first Sunday that Jimmy and his wife and his children were part of our church, they invited people into their home. I remember an older couple that we went to their home with, and the couple said, this is the first time I've been in the home of someone in the church I'm not related to. I heard that. It's surprising, isn't it? But it's not unusual. This morning, if Jimmy is listening, and there's a chance he is, what I want to say to him is I'm very thankful that you taught me how to love people in the church of Christ. And the reason I'm thankful for that is because the third thing that 1 Corinthians 12 tells us about the value of the church, the reason why you should value the church is because the church is the place in which you can be loved. And as strange as that sounds, if you've been in church for many years, you might have experiences in which it's not love that you've experienced, but difficulty and heartache, maybe squabbling, maybe hard feelings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, Paul explains to us, and I'm going to explain in just a minute, why it is true that the church is the place where you can be loved. In order to explain that to you, I want to tell you three things. Now, if you're a child, I'm going to read this slowly because they're not easy to remember, but this is the best I could do in trying to explain this to you. The first thing that Paul tells us is that what is true of the whole is true also of us. And he says that in verses 27 and the beginning of verse 28. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God is appointed in the church first. Up to this point in this short series, I haven't given you much information about the church in Corinth. Maybe some of you bring that information with you. You've studied this book before. I don't want to assume that. Ordinarily, when I'm preaching a series of sermons, I weave that history into the sermons. It's critical for us to understand that Paul was writing to real people and how these words would have been understood by the people who received them first. But I've held back in explaining to you the people that Paul was writing to because I wanted to reserve it for this morning. The Corinthian church was not an easy church to belong to. It was a very troubled church. In fact, in my estimation, it may have been one of the most troubled 
When you read through the earlier chapters of 1 Corinthians, you'll notice there are all sorts of things that he addresses. He talks about deep conflict in the church. It's in the first chapter. He talks about Christians suing each other and how dishonoring that is to our Lord. He talks about sexual immorality in the church. He says, of the sort that even unbelievers don't experience. This is a very troubled church. But in the chapters that we are looking at, Paul addresses more than simply the trouble at the church. There seems to be some additional questions that he wants to address with these Corinthians. These include the relationship between men and women, especially in worship, how to conduct the Lord's Supper, and the use of spiritual gifts in the church. Now, especially this last one is where we are in chapter 12. How do we think about spiritual gifts in the church? The first thing I just want to acknowledge is that we don't talk about that very much. In fact, someone in our church recently called me on the phone. I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. She said, could I go through a spiritual gift analysis with some ladies in our church? Do you think that'd be okay? And my first thought was, well, that's pretty interesting considering I've just studied 1 Corinthians 12 where we talk about spiritual gifts. (laughs) Of course that's okay. Now, because we're not used to talking about them, it seems strange then when Paul enters into this question in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What you must know about this chapter in order to understand what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is that they were very concerned about the speaking in tongues. Now to the Pentecostals in the Christian church who believe that the speaking in tongues was some kind of ecstatic utterance or maybe an angelic language, I would say to you my conviction is very different. That is, it probably was ordinary human languages that God equipped people to speak in order to spread the gospel. You can see that in Acts chapter 2. But whatever you think about the speaking in tongues... What was true in the Corinthian church is that it was valued, it seems, as the spiritual gift to have. And because of this desire for that spiritual gift, Paul Paul places great emphasis on the importance and the role of the church as a whole. Now, I realize I'm belaboring this a bit, and I'm doing that intentionally because I want you to see that chapter 12 It's about how gifts function within the church as a whole, or even more generally, how we fit into the church as a whole. And I've said it before previous weeks, but I want to say it again because it is such an important part of this chapter. One of Paul's burdens is to say to us over and over, the church consists of the various members, that is the various parts of the church, the people of the church, And there are no extra parts in the church. There is no one who has a great gift that makes that person the super member and the rest of us are relegated to, well, we just sort of belong, but we don't really matter. No, Paul says, no, we all belong together. You see that again in the verses I just read. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He is saying again to you this morning that to belong to the body of Jesus Christ means you're an integral part of who we are. You're not extra. You're not a part that just shows up occasionally. 
No, to be a healthy member of a church means we're integrated, we belong together. We have joy with those who have joy, we weep with those who weep, and we do so because we belong. This is us. This is who God has given us together. Now, if I fail to say this strongly enough before, I want to say it now. And maybe this is something, if you're taking notes, you might want to write down, because I have it italicized in my notes. If Paul is working so hard to convince us of our role in the church, there's a reason for it. And as the church is critically important. In fact, important enough for you to invest your life and your energy in. It's not just a place like any other place. No, Paul is telling us as the Bible seeks to convince us that the church of Jesus Christ is critically important in the way in which God is working in his world. In fact, critical enough that for me to call you to invest your time and your energy in the church is not my desire just for the church to function well. This is the call of Jesus Christ to you. Now you might wonder, how in the world could I make that point so powerfully? I want to point out something that Paul is doing in verses 27 and the beginning of 28. It's kind of a minor point, but I think... It is significant in the way Paul speaks. In verse 27 and 28, Paul uses the word church, I think, in two different ways. It is clear in verse 27 that Paul, at the beginning, is emphasizing to the people of Corinth that they belong in their church, that is, the local congregation, the place that they belong. He says, you are the body of Christ and members of it individually. But then in verse 28, he goes on to say, and God has also pointed in the church. And then he goes on to talk about the apostles and prophets and teachers. On the one hand, he seems to use church as this, the people who are gathered in a particular location. And then he also calls the church the great body of believers in all space and time that our particular congregation is a part of. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is because I want you to hear that what Paul says to the church generally also applies to us. That when the Bible speaks about the church being entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not just the church generally, it is this church that is entrusted with the gospel. There is no other organization in the world to which the gospel of Jesus Christ and its spread has been entrusted. It is the church who has been given the precious news of grace in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended and through his disciples to the church, go and make disciples baptizing them and teaching them everything that I have commanded you and go to the ends of the world to do it. This is the central calling of the church to bring worship to our God by making disciples of those who have wandered far from Him. 
That's why the Big C Church exists, and that's why Redeemer Church exists. If you're part of the inquirer's class after this morning's service, you're going to note that we're going to start our second meeting by me explaining to you why Redeemer exists. And I can just tell you it's not because there were people who thought, hey, there's not a church that exactly like we like it, so we should start one so that we have our own church. No, Redeemer exists in this time and place because there are people who do not know Jesus Christ. Maybe you're among them. And those who are here, we need to grow and mature into likeness of Christ. That's why we exist. And that purpose that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out and transform human beings and transform families and communities and eventually the world so that when Jesus Christ comes back, he receives to himself a bride who's gloriously prepared. That is the calling of the church. And here's the beautiful news for you. You've been called into that. If I can just step away from the passage for a moment, I know that some of you come here and you feel like your life really doesn't have a lot of meaning. Maybe you go to work every day and you just, you put in the time, you punch the clock, you go home, you feel like, okay, what did I really do? Maybe what I'm doing is providing for myself and perhaps if you're married, children, I'm providing for my family. That's what I'm doing, providing for them. And then you come home and you walk through the door and If I could just tell you this, I don't mean to be too funny. They don't appreciate all that you do for them. So rather than finding some great sense of fulfillment and look how hard I'm working, instead there are demands and requests. And you think to yourself, why am I doing this? What is my purpose in life? Why am I here? Maybe that resonates with you, maybe not. But it's one of the great questions of human existence. Why am I here? What, 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 is my, what, is, what, what is my existence for? I think it is in God's kindness to us as human beings that he gives a great purpose to the church of Jesus Christ, a place where we can belong, that we can know together that our purpose, there is purpose in work, there is purpose in family, there is purpose in being a good citizen of our nation, but you will not know those purposes apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ in which he is declared to be King and Lord. Otherwise, those areas of life in which you work, you'll find other sorts of goals, and let me tell you, they will not satisfy your heart. But if the church is called to be the place that makes and matures disciples for Jesus Christ, the big church in our congregation, you can contribute to something that really matters. Not just for a moment, not for a while, not just when you're sitting here in these comfy chairs, but you can contribute to something for a lifetime. No, really, you'll contribute to something that lasts for eternity. And that is a purpose that I would dare say the mass of humanity longs for and yet never finds because they're looking for something that only can be satisfied in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's the longest part of my sermon. 
And it is what is true of the whole is true of us. That is what is true of the church. That is we have a great calling. Is also true of this congregation. We have that calling. And you belong here with a great purpose. The second thing I want to point out to you actually takes more words in the text. And that is what has been true in the past continues to be true for us. And that's found at the end of verse 28 into verse 30. And I'm not going to read it again. But when you look at those verses, you see a list of what we might call spiritual gifts. And what I want you to notice, if you look there in your Bibles, if you have them open, is that that list actually divides into two parts, I believe. Paul says, first, he is given what? Apostles, then prophets, then teachers. That is the first part of the list. These are what you might describe as offices in the church, official positions that God has given responsibility to. If I can kind of burrow down or dig down on that list, Paul in another place in Ephesians 2 verse 20 says that the prophets and the apostles are the two offices upon which the church is built. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is historically it is through these two offices that the word of Christ came to us. Christ formed the church through the word of the apostles and the prophets. In the Old Testament, the prophets called the people to look forward to Jesus Christ. He built their appetite for him so that when the Messiah came, they were ready They wanted to receive him. They could say like John the Baptist, there's the Lamb of God who takes away away the sin of the world. What did the apostles do? The apostles walked with Jesus and explained to us what it means for Jesus to have entered the world. These apostles, apostles and prophets gave us original revelation. And once... That revelation was complete. Those offices no longer exist. But then Paul adds to the apostles and prophets, he says, teachers. And I have to tell you that in my estimation, at least from my position this morning speaking to you, I'm very happy for this office. (laughs) Because I don't know why I've explained to you before, if I look back in my history and my life and the twists and turns historically and the struggle I have with my own sin, I am amazed that God has given me the honor and privilege of speaking to you about the Word of God this morning. (laughs) It is a huge testimony to me about the mercy of God that God would give me the honor of doing this. So, if I can just point out to you in the text, the office of teacher is meant to follow on the offices of apostles and prophets. The role of the teacher continues, and it is what we're doing here this morning. We're explaining the revelation that God gave through the apostles and the prophets, and I continue to explain that revelation to you. I'm not here this morning to give you some nice reflections on my life and how for you to be a better person and what it means for us to do good things for our community. I want you to be nicer. We should do good things for our community, but at the very core of what the church is, is the revelation that comes in the Scripture, the Bible, about who Jesus is and what he does to form the church. So here I am, as I said, speaking to you, Lord willing, fulfilling the office that continues in the church today. 
And because he begins with this list, I just want to point out to you a temptation that may very quickly follow. Because I'm up here speaking and you're there listening, you might get the impression that the most important office in the church is the office of teacher. And maybe I'll go even a step further and I'll say, the office of teacher is the only office that matters in the church. And if that's your conviction, then I want to show you the second list. Because that is entirely opposed to what Paul has been telling the Corinthians in this chapter. There's a second list, and this one I'm going to read for you. He says, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. And then he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? What does he mean for us to answer? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. What he is saying is that this list of gifts that exists beyond the gift of preaching and teaching, these gifts also belong to the church. And in my estimation, he is not providing an exhaustive list, but a sample of the gifts that belong to the church in order to make this point to you. Even if you're not the preacher, you are critically important to the church. You also have been equipped by God maybe differently than I have. I think I've said it a number of times. I'm going to say it again. I am so thankful for the gift of administration that exists in our church. I do not think I could be a pastor in this church without the administrator who sits behind the desk and greets you cheerfully when you show up. I don't think... It would be possible for me to function within the church without the gift of helping. There are people in this body who have dedicated their lives to helping other people. How in the world as a pastor could the church be cared for? How would that be possible for me without the help of others within the body? It would be impossible. I'd be preaching to people who are perpetually wounded. And while the message of Jesus Christ is foundational, and I am joyful to preach it to you, without the gifts of the church as a whole, the church will never mature. Paul says that in another place. The church grows up when? When every part does its part. As absolutely critical as it is for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached from this pulpit Sunday after Sunday, it is also critical that the gospel transforms this body into a group of people who use their gifts for the assistance of others. Otherwise, it will be impossible for this church to grow up and be healthy. It will not happen. You will come here and hear nice sermons and you'll leave this place smiling saying, fine, but there will be very little real discipleship that occurs. And so I say to you again, you should contribute to the thing that matters, the church of Jesus Christ. But I add to it this, in a way that you are able, and you are able 
You really are. No matter who you are and how much you think it is unlikely that you're able to contribute, I will tell you because the Scripture says you have a way to contribute. You really do. Which brings me to the third thing that I'm going to say to you this morning, and this is going to be brief, but it's really the punch of the passage. The majority of this passage that we read starts at verse 31 where Paul says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. I'm not entirely sure that's the way it ought to be translated. I think more accurately it says, but you should desire the greater gifts. And then in chapter 13, he goes on to tell you what the greater gift or the more excellent way is. And here I'm not going to be clever at all. I just want to tell you what Paul says. And that is, it is possible to use the gifts of the church for you to use gifts in your church, whatever you've been given to do, but to use them very wrongly. You can give, use your gifts of helping or administrating or even the gift of preaching, but to use it in an entirely wrong way. It becomes simply a matter of function. I'm supposed to do it, so I will. But if the use of gifts is divorced from a love that we have that comes from Christ and flows to each other, the gifts, instead of helping each other and encouraging growth and discipleship, will instead come to harm the body of Jesus Christ. I want to just let that reverberate for a moment. If I do not have a love for you as a preacher of the gospel, I can put together very technically sound sermons. And God is able to use those sermons. I'm sure He can. But if what I preach does not flow from the love of God for me and is issued to you with a genuine love, it cannot accomplish the purpose that Christ intends. You'll figure it out. Just like if you use your gift in the church, whatever it is, whatever your giftedness is, and I don't mean to make it super spiritual, Signing up for the nursery is a way to help other people. Serving cookies is a way to help. Writing a note to somebody, bringing them dinner, sitting down and praying with them, reading a scripture passage to them, calling them on the phone, bringing them to a doctor's appointment, asking a young man or woman out for lunch that you can mentor Calling someone who is lonely, visiting them in their home. There are literally thousands of ways for you to contribute in the church. All you have to do is ask, where are the opportunities? In fact, I want to challenge you as part of this series of sermons to ask yourself that question. Where can I contribute to the church of Jesus Christ? I'm not asking you to transform the church. I'm asking you to contribute in ways that you're capable and where there are opportunities. I'm asking you to change your thinking from what can the church do for me to what has Christ done for me and how can I show that love for other people? I think I've noted it before. I want to note to you it again. There's a relatively contemporary theologian who said the greatest apologetic that the church can offer to a culture that is radically post-Christian is a testimony of a church that actually loves that actually loves its members 
I'm not saying that's the same thing as giving a good, well-reasoned argument about the existence of God or about the deity of Christ. I'm not saying those are the same categorically. I'm simply saying what many people are longing for, perhaps this morning, what you're longing for goes beyond your mind to your heart. I found over and over that's exactly true. The objections of our minds are expressions of our hearts. And when I started this sermon, I said to you, one of the reasons you ought to belong to the church is because it is a place to be loved. I want to end my sermon by pointing out something to you which hopefully is not a surprise, but is so critically important to our understanding of the church. John says in 1 John, this is love, not that we have loved him, but that he has loved us and has given his son to be the propitiation for our sin. At the very heart of the character of God is the love that he has for us. He is motivated to care for you, not because of who you are, but simply because of his love. It is a mercy. It is a kindness. He knows you, my friend. He knows everything about you, your mistakes, your hesitancies, all the reasons why others would never want to be around you, you say in your own mind. But God in his wisdom reaches out to you simply because of his love. That love is at the foundation of, of the gospel. There can be no gospel without the love, motivation of our God. And that is why Paul, after explaining your place in the church in the appropriate use of your gifts, is not addressing, first of all, marriage in 1 Corinthians 13. It is not about friendship in 1 Corinthians 13. It is not so you can create a plaque to put on the wall, as interesting and fun as that is, 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, is given to us in context so that we can know that the church is a place where you can contribute in a way that matters for eternity because of the love of Jesus Christ that is given to you. and is expressed within the church. I pray this morning, if you came into this building wondering what the church is about, maybe if I can even speak long term, your life, even if you've been in church many, many years and you've wondered, why do I keep going? It's a pattern of life. It's just something I do. That this morning, your motivation would be radically challenged and maybe even changed. That you would come to see the church as a place that you can contribute to and matters. And it matters because of the love of Christ and the love that is demonstrated in the gifts that we use to serve each other. May that be true always, my friends, of this body of believers. Let's pray. Our Father, our simple prayer this morning is that what Paul says at the beginning of this book about the Spirit taking the things that belong to the mind of our God and making them clear to us that that truth would have been fulfilled in what we have heard. Anything that's contrary to that, that is counterproductive, that harms the cause of Christ, Lord, take it away. But all that contributes to that and causes us to grow up 
into the likeness of Jesus Christ, Lord, use not only these words, but use His body as a whole, that the love of Christ would be expressed in a way that is winsome and brings about real discipleship and change. Lord, make us a people of genuine love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.